Welcome to the State of the Markets podcast. I'm Paul Rodriguez of thinktrading.com. I'm Tim Price of pricevaluepartners.com. And our very special guest is Thomas Roderick. He's Portfolio Manager at Trium Capital. Tom Roderick, welcome to the show. Hi guys, thanks for having me. So before we before we kick off into the uh, into the chat, do you want to just give a, a quick pricey a little little bio for our for our listeners? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, so I'm a global macro manager uh, in London, and so I work for uh, Trium Capital, and I, I've been running a strategy here, investing in global macro markets uh, since 2018. Uh, before that, I was working with um, the esteemed Hugh Hendry at Eclectica. And before that, I started my career at Brevin Howard, uh, also based in London. Um, sort of, yeah, I, my background, I, I studied science at university. I was a physicist and then went into the, into the dark, dark world of uh, macro hedge funds from there. So you mentioned Hugh Hendry. Uh, does this mean you're carrying a surfboard at the moment? Uh, sadly not. I'm 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 in London at the moment, and so are you wearing I'm, roller skates? I'm I'm I'm. Are, I, I, are you sm- Are you smoking a spliff? Well, I I I I I, I reject that. I don't have to answer. <laughs> That's true. Actually, your 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 answer can be privileged. Okay, I'll I'll I'll, I'll, I'll decline to answer. That and you one. and you may choose you may choose not to inhale. Anyway. I, I I don't I don't understand any of those references other than was that what it was like at Eclectica. <laughs> Uh, it wasn't hugely like that. No, it was. Yeah, to be frank, it was. I would say a relatively normal atmosphere. And I think you know, I think to some to some extent, Hugh's uh, persona is is more of an outward one than it was internally within the firm. And so he sort of uh, you know sort of projected that surfer life um, whilst sort of you know working a well, if not a nine to five, then a eleven to four. Um but I think I think nowadays he is he is much more living that life. You know, he's 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 based in, in the Caribbean permanently and so you know he he's living the surf of life he probably always wanted to. So mm. yeah. So I it's very tempting to make it all about Eclectica and, and, and him, but uh I'll leave I'll leave that to you if you want to expand on anything <laughs> you want to say about your time there. Um, yeah, like, you know, you know what, it was a, it, it was a fantastic place to work. And, um, like what I kind of took from it is, you know, agree with you or disagree with you. I do think he made the world of investing that bit brighter. And I think, you know, I'm, I'm definitely appreciative of that. Um, but at the same time, I'd say, you know, what, what he taught me and what I, what I sort of like, uh, try and, uh, bring forward to uh the way that i'm running money at trium is is looking at things in a sort of like an overarching way so having an overall thematic viewpoint about what you think is happening and not getting too too swayed by the day-to-day noise of you know uh data prints here or there or whether the s p has gone up or down uh 10 points but to sort of try and figure out from first principles uh what direction you think the global economy is going to go and from there to try and build a portfolio where you think that you know if you get it right you you know you can you can make decent money out of doing that so i think he de- he definitely taught me that um so that was you know i'm very very appreciative for that um but i have to say at the moment 
we don't agree on an awful lot when it comes to markets. I'm I'm very much in the in the inflationary sort of higher for longer camp, whereas he's sort of you know expecting a big recession and rates go back to one percent. And so we we definitely haven't got any closer to to circling the square of our differences yet. I mean, this is this is where the the Austrian in me is it feels obligated to say that inflation. Inflation and inflationism is is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon. So, the inflation's baked in now because the money printing's baked in. Yeah, absolutely. I guess it depends on on whether you think it's you know. I, I guess the money supply is is now shrinking, and so the question is, you know, to how much how much of a lag does that money printing have? Um, you know, you, you, you obviously the Fed has shrinking their balance sheet. If you look at uh, bank reserves in the U.S., they're shrinking. But at the same time, if you you know if you look from the end of 2019 to now, uh, the Fed's balance sheet went from five trillion to ten trillion, and is now sort of you know coming back to about nine again. And so, in that time, you had an enormous, like an eighty percent increase in. Um, in the, the the kind of the narrow money supply, and obviously, if you're looking at that from a from a from a sort of uh, a monetarist perspective, then you know we haven't seen an eighty percent increase in the price level, and so from that perspective, you know there could be more inflation to come. Is that kind of where you're coming from when you look? I at think it? that that yeah, that that pretty much sort of sums up my view. I was going to ask Paul on this one because you mentioned economy and, and markets. From your perspective, Paul, do you do you really look at the economy at all in in your analysis of things? No, no. I mean, in in short, no, uh, because for me, the the stock market is ultimately discounting what the uh, performance of the economy is going to be six to eight months in the future. So it's 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 very interesting to hear different views. But given what I'm seeing from a technical point of view, the way equity markets are bubbling close to all time highs and or multi-year highs in certain cases, it seems like, uh, and also just uh, looking at um, precious metals as well, um, it, it seems more likely that inflation is going to be more of a problem. That doesn't mean I don't ever look at macro themes and look at the logic of what the authorities might be doing. And it seems like there's no way out of this and it'll be interesting to see how they try and get out of it without causing a huge, huge amount of inflation. Because as we've discussed on the pod many times, um, when interest rates were near zero, bringing them back up was always going to be a problem. And then, then they would have a, another problem dealing with the potential um, turndown in the economy that that would cause. And the only way to deal with that would be to low interest rates and do what they always do and print money. So... Um, so in short, no, it's all in the charts as far as I'm concerned. But I do, I do find macro themes and ideas interesting. Um, but it, it, the market ultimately decides. I mean, the, the overarching thing from my perspective, I guess, would be which which trumps any other argument is that you know everyone's been used, to, anyone working has been used to what is now 40 years of declining rates and declining inflation. That process went into reverse two years ago. And once you start hiking rates from their lowest levels in all of recorded history, bad things happen to financial assets, notably to, to bonds. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I, but I think what we may have missed over that period of time is that whilst we thought inflation is going down, it actually isn't. And mm. 
And it's not, it's going down in the sense that technology is getting better. And, and that's the one that's always sort of put forward because you can get a, a better computer, a better phone. And but, it, but in an un, unmanipulated world, then we'd actually have outright deflation. Well, it, it, in a, I mean, what, what, what about our spending has ever gone down? over the years is is how i see it i mean it, it it's if every time we go back sort of 10 or 20 or 30 years and look at how what we used to <laughs> it's become almost like a a joke where you say we're well, in my day you used to be able to buy a pint of beer for 50p and that you know ride the ride home on the bus and still have change for for something else i mean it's so my but, my foggy anecdote then is going to be i remember at school we could get four aniseed balls for a penny so they were a quarter <laughs> of p each well I, I remember when i first started working um in 19 what was it 1987 and my salary was what about 400 pounds a month and and it was you know you could literally just take five pounds out and have a night out and so <laughs> it, it, i know it sounds ridiculous doesn't it and it's it, but but what's happened in between yeah okay that was a long time ago but if we come come to now we've had this so-called deflationary period and now we're going into this inflationary period. But I would argue we've always had a higher level of inflation. Um, and it's pretty obvious that we're experiencing that. But it seems to be going into acceleration. And Yeah, yeah, and I, I'd, agree, I'd agree with that. Yeah, it, do, it does seem to be accelerating. Like, but, you know, if you, look at, if you look at economic history before the last 100 or so years, at least when you didn't have periods of... We didn't have know, central banks. Monetary, monetary um inflation due to you know clipping clipping the corners off gold coins or something yeah def deflation is the natural state of affairs and yeah like you know we have seen just about enough inflation over the last 40 years even to to offset those productivity gains i guess and now and now we're seeing um the inflation you know being even bigger than that and that's that's kind of interesting you know it's, it's certainly you know as a discretionary macro guy it's interesting because you know a lot of there's a lot of um, quant money out there these days, and the fact that the last forty years, or even really the last eighty years of financial history, haven't really included these periods of significant uh, monetary inflation, at least in 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 the in, in the way that you can measure a lot of things, is is good for me because you know you can go back to first principles and you can work out okay what should you do rather than Hey, let's you know get all of this analysis and you know data price series and just stick it in a big um, machine learning algorithm and work out what to do. So it, it definitely definitely makes things more interesting uh, from my perspective. But it's interesting what you said as well about um, the price of uh, the price of sweets at school. Um, I remember uh, when I was just started secondary school, used to pay uh, a penny for a sherbet straw. And there was a real sherbet straw, straw craze in my school at the time. And to be honest, it, that was actually one of my first forays into the world of capitalism um, because there was only one, one corner shop in the whole of the town which sold these straws. And, you know, they usually had a delivery like every Monday. And so, you know, I would rush down there every Monday morning to go and buy these sherbet straws. Um, to corner, to corner at, the market. Yeah, corner the market. And, you know, by, uh, by midday on Tuesday, you can sell them for five pence a piece. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I think the, the audience needs to know, were these hollow straws or were they solid? 
Um, so, so these, it's like, if you could imagine a drinking straw, um, with both ends sealed, uh, with, with, the, with the middle filled with sherbet. Oh yeah. yeah right, 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 right. It, it just became an absolute craze. I think, I think they got banned in about two months because it was just the, the, the floor of the school was just littered with these things. And so they, they got banned, but, um, because I'm a fan of the sherbet dip dab, but there's also the which is which is the one that has the um, the the licorice dipper. Yeah, that's the sherbet. Yeah, sherbet. No, dip. no, no, the dip. No, the dip. Which is the because one of them dip. has a little a little red lolly, and the other one has a, a black licorice straw. Oh. oh yeah, right. Okay, yeah. I think the sherbet dip is the, isn't that the one with the licorice. And the dip dab must be the one with the lolly. The dip dab is the one with the lolly. I think you're right. <laughs> okay, well, These are important things we need to throw exactly. Out. We need to get that straight before we. We, we need to define our terms before yes, exactly. we uh, make any conclusions. But yeah, no, you're actually making me hungry for sherbet. I don't think I've, I don't think I've had had a sherbet straw for at least a decade. So I'm and, gonna, I, and, I, and I think I think given the Hugh Hendry connection, we're not necessarily talking sherbet. Nudge nudge, <laughs> wing wing. <laughs> allegedly allegedly <laughs> moving swiftly on um so so in, inflation is potentially coming now you you've talked about a few uh elements there where you've talked about quant funds and and macro themes now we, we have a lot of listeners who actually don't know very much about the financial markets but are, are looking to learn and understand a bit more they're the ones that work for the central banks they're the ones for the yes absolutely so could you just break down in simple terms what those terms mean for the for these people, please. So I would say, um, you know, if you're a macro investor, um, instead of you know, so 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 if you you know, I guess people are pretty familiar with normal sort of long only bottom up equity investing, where you you know you you, stock, you look at a company picking, stock picking stock picking you look you look at a company's balance sheet you 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 look at what it's doing. Uh, you look at the specifics about that business and you make a decision about whether you want to invest or not. And now, of course, you can do that a bunch of times and get a portfolio of stocks. Uh, but the thing which is always going to catch you out is, you know, you can pick the best stocks in the market potentially. But if you have um, something which happens beyond the level of an individual company, let's say you have, you know, interest rates getting hiked uh, from 0% to 5%, or if you have... Market a big crash, recession, a, a big market crash, a big recession coming out of China. Um, that has a major impact on that portfolio, and you get hurt. And you know those sort of those sort of external things which can which can hit you, even if you get the sort of the micro analysis on an individual company level correct, is what I would define as macro. So so basically, you know, you're looking at uh, how how currencies move relative to one another. Um, it could be looking at the price of oil over time, because of course, as the oil price goes up, it it sort of tends to con to constrain spending on uh, more discretionary items and can hit the profits of sort of companies who rely on uh, consumers and their discretionary spending. Or it could be, um, yeah, it, it could be a financial crash. It could be like a bank going under. And you know what I look at is, is instead of looking at the level of the individual companies, I look at, I start from the big stuff first and then work down. And so I'm trying to, you know, I'm, I'm looking to analyze um, what the Federal Reserve are going to do, where I think uh, interest rate policy is going to go. Um, is there going to be a big recession coming out of China? Is that going to affect financial markets? Um, 
and how resilient is the economy to a potential increase in the price of commodities that kind of thing and so i i sort of i sort of look at those things and i sort of try and come up with a view of where i think an economy or a currency is going to go and you know sometimes i'll take that all the way down to the level of individual companies you know potentially via a sector or by a basket of companies which i think reflects a particular bigger theme but you know not necessarily being as focused on um what the individual companies are doing you know i'm trying to uh, just as just as um you know stock pickers will will potentially try and isolate their macro risk you know potentially by buying some bonds or buying some gold i will um you know, try and isolate my uh, stock picking risk uh, by being as big and diverse as I can while still, you know, reflecting the macro theme, whatever it might be. You know, for example, if I um, was looking at the energy world um, and I uh, sort of, you know, worked out that there was a lack of baseload energy supply, um, that kind of brings you to uh, nuclear power. And nuclear power brings you to uranium mining. And if there isn't enough uranium being mined relative to the the kind of the, the forward demand from China opening loads of nuclear power stations and other Western countries uh, following in their wake, then that might mean a shortage of uranium. Um, I wouldn't necessarily go and look at the individual companies who were exposed to that theme, but instead I would kind of like, I'd be like, hey, let's buy all of them. If, if or you is, might buy a uranium ETF or sell a uranium ETF. Yeah, I might buy a uranium ETF or I'll try and diversify my risk as much as I can. So that might be, you know, buying holding companies and, and just get in as many different ways of getting exposure to the theme such that, you know, if a, if a particular mine has an issue and they find there's less than less uranium than expected or if they have a fire, I'm kind of isolated from that risk and I'm all I'm trying to take is that sort of the macro risk as opposed to the individual stock risk, I guess. What would you say your, in as much as you can say, your, your preferred sort of big picture themes at the moment? Um, so I, I'd say my big picture themes at the moment, I'd say I've, I've really got two main themes going on, uh, which I'm expressing in the portfolio at the moment. Um, the first one is um, is really, you know, about what we were discussing in terms of inflation. You know, I'm expecting uh, higher inflation and as a result, higher interest rates than a lot of the market is expecting. And that comes down to three reasons why why I'm kind of in that camp and why I'm building my portfolio around that. Um, and I call them the three Ds. And those Ds are decarbonization, deglobalization and demographics. Um, um, decarbonization and deglobalization, to me, uh, in terms of uh, their impact on the economy, are kind of the same. Because what you're trying to do is you're trying to remove two things that you don't want as much of in your economy. And those two things are carbon and exposure to China. And there is a reason why the world um, is run on fossil fuels and why the manufacturing uh, engine of the world is in China. And that's because it's cheaper. And so if you're moving away from uh, places which is you know cheaper methods of production and cheaper places to manufacture stuff, then 
you're going to have you're going to expect even even if you manage to do these things deglobalization and decarbonization as well as you possibly can you're going to see prices go up over the long term and you're going to see you know higher higher fiscal deficits higher investment spending than you would in the sort of counterfactual world the third the third thing behind that for me is demographics and primarily that's chinese demographics and so essentially they've been the manufacturing center of the world for a long time partly because they opened up to the world uh, at a time when they had a huge sort of underutilized working age population. And now that working age population is retiring, um, they're getting older, and as a result, you're starting to see that decline. And so, yeah, regardless of whether the world wanted to kind of remove China from the manufacturing food chain, um, it's kind of going to happen anyway. There's just there's just a less less of a global supply of workers than there were, and so those those three things make me think that inflation is going to be higher over the long run, and expect interest rates to be higher over the long run. And and, and obviously these are these are very kind of long term factors, and so the, the gyrations of the market from uh, from week to week can be different, but. Ultimately, I think these factors will come to the fore. And the second, the second big theme that I'm kind of trading at the moment is sort of more in depth on China. Um, I think that China is in real trouble, um, and you know they built up all this manufacturing capacity, uh, which has you know allowed people in the West to have access to cheap goods. But as we move away from that in the West and sort of have to pay a bit more for our goods. On the other side of the boat is China, where they're going to end up having access capacity and all of this stuff. And as a result, I think that China, you know, the, the, the economic performance will be weaker and they'll have a disinflationary impulse. And you're actually seeing that at the moment. You're seeing remarkably uh, Japanese inflation is now higher than Chinese inflation as China has gone into outright deflation. And I don't think this is, you know, there's no quick fix out of China's problems. You know, they've overbuilt on housing. They've overextended themselves, much as other sort of authoritarian communist regimes have in the past. And now they're paying the price. And so these these are kind of like the big, the big, big picture macro themes that I'm playing in the portfolio. And, you know, then it's it's really a case of of taking those long term themes and trying to find stuff which you know, can make you money on a short term basis. So, you know, that could be, you know, to take China, for example, um, potential trades I could do is, you know, shorten the stock market, uh, expecting the Chinese yuan to go down relative to the US dollar, uh, expecting Chinese bonds to outperform Western bonds, just, you know, simply because if you've got disinflation in China or even outright deflation, you expect the yield on new bonds to go down rather than up. And so, yeah, at the moment, the way I'm playing China is is via the currency. I think they will allow a bit more weakness, and um, and yeah, but for me, it's all about kind of marrying sort of short term what's happening in the markets in the short term, looking at technical signals, looking at data, and putting that together with this kind of long term thesis that I've sort of got laid out. I think you've already answered this question, but I'll I'll, I'll push anyway, which is to what extent. Is sympathetic to the argument that China is about to experience what Japan experienced over the last thirty years, because for me the 
the, the, the Japanese experience post 89 is was the first big picture theme I saw because at the time when I started in in my career I was working for the Jap- for Japanese banks so I could see what was happening in the, the Japanese government bond market you know I had like sort of front row seats do you, do you think that China is in danger of becoming the new Japan uh, I think it's already there mm. um, so yeah they, because well, for any for anyone that's been in the, in the market for the last few years you know the yeah. idea of Japanese inflation is almost well where where on earth did that come from because they haven't had any. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think the thing is, like, um, sometimes uh, we're guilty, uh, sitting in London or in New York or wherever you are, of having a very short-term mindset about the markets and the economy. And I think, you know, when you look at, like, the Western astrological calendar, it's 12 months long, right? We, we go through a 12-month cycle, and then we reset, and then we have a new one. Whereas you look at the astrological calendar in China, it's 12 years long. You have you have a, a year for every click of that cycle, and I think this is in some way indicative of um, the pace at which things move in China. You know, you have these you have these five year plans. You have um, bureaucrats sitting in ivory towers, basically dictating what's going to happen to the economy. Um, you know, you don't have um, animal spirits guiding the way. You have um, twelve years of the same guy in power in Xi Jinping. And I think I think this is indicative of how you should think about China. You know, things have things have started to slow um, and sort of really came to a bit of a head in COVID. But the way that we think of things from a Western perspective is, OK, this is, you know, this is a bit of weakness for China. It will bounce back as the animal spirits resume. But no, I don't think that's really true. You had you had basically a 12-year period of uninterrupted growth from 2009 to 2020. Um, and and now we're just starting the next wave of the cycle, which may take a lot, lot longer than people expect. And when you look at when you look at the state that China's got itself into, um, their property wealth as a proportion of GDP is something higher than 400%. And to put that into perspective, in the US, which has its own problems with an overvalued housing market, it's about 250%. In Japan, it's about 100%. And so you have a vastly overvalued property asset at the heart of the problem in China. And the difference, I think, with Japan is that you know, the Japanese were willing to take the price correction. Um, mm. That didn't break the social contract to have a fall in property values. And so, you know, you saw you saw property values, I think you, you probably know better than me, um, but I think came down 80% plus from the peak. I um, think in central, I think prime central uh, Tokyo property fell by 99%. 99%, wow. Um, but in China, in China, it's essentially, it's, it's essentially illegal to sell new homes at a discount to existing homes and to the existing market. You get people, um, yeah, you have you have people out. If, if there's one thing that people do protest about in China, it's declining property values. And because of that, uh, both local government and central governments essentially won't allow it to happen. They won't allow the depreciation in value to happen because you know that's the main store of Chinese wealth and it it's it, it almost seems like the social contract is hey you provide me a job and an appreciating home um in terms of value and i will do what you please 
Mm. Um, and so it's very, very dangerous for the, for the Chinese government to go and kind of break that model. Um, yes, it's an authoritarian country, but you know, if you want to, if you want to keep a billion and a half people in check, you have to, you know, somewhat listen to what they're telling you. And so I think, I think they've got a real problem because they can't depreciate this asset. And, you know, that's, that's one of the reasons why I think um, that being short the yuan is um, one of the best trades out there right now, because if they can't depreciate that asset in yuan, maybe they can do it in dollars. Maybe mm. that's sort of okay. Maybe they can sort of get away with that. But essentially, you know, you 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 probably need to see um, a revaluation of that Chinese property asset down by at least 100% of GDP. And in addition to that, if you look at um, the percentage of GDP that was um, residential home construction and related industries in China in 2019, it was about 30%. that number probably needs to come down to about 15% in a steady state. And so if, you know, if China wants to, you know, keep its GDP where it is, let alone grow it, it needs to find a replacement for that 15%. And then when you consider that they also massively overbuilt, and so that number probably needs to come down to around 10% of GDP for the next you know, five, six years just to sort of, you know, just work their way through that property overhang, then you've got 20% of Chinese GDP, which is just not going to be functioning at all. And so even if you can, you know, build new railways, build green infrastructure, um, sort of encourage the consumer to spend a bit more, like, is it really going to be enough to replace this, this, this monster of an industry that was Chinese residential property construction? I don't think so, which is, you know, which is, what makes me very bearish and unlike Japan, there isn't really an obvious path out of it. It's really interesting that you mentioned the social contracts. I just put out a commentary called the main event. And one of the things I I pointed out was that I think I'm broadly right in these, in these statistics in terms of the loss of wealth incurred within the property and equity market, what Japan actually experienced in the nineties was the equivalent of two American Great Depressions, not one, but two. Uh, and yet, you know, there was no problem in terms of lawlessness or violence or, you know, the kind of thing that happens when you get a bit of, a bit, a bit like, a, like a, a rainstorm in an, an American city. Um, and there's, a, there's a, a, a letter that I quoted from, I've quoted this several times now, it's a letter to the FT from a Japanese gentleman, Mr. Takashi Ito, in, back in August 2010. He said, for so long, people have sneered at the Japanese for their inability to steer their economy to recovery. Perhaps because they have sneered so much, it is no longer possible to admit that after a huge housing bubble bursts, there is nothing to do except suffer many years of economic indignity, which I just think is a fantastic way of putting it. It's such a wonderfully Japanese way of putting it. <laughs> many years of economic indignity. And it sounds yeah. like China's heading in that direction. Well, I think, but I think. The curious thing is that as 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 you as I think you know that guy sort of hints at that what happened to Japan is is almost like a best case scenario. Yeah, yeah. There, there has been no one else who's ever dealt with such. No one else could. Do, no one else could do it. No one else. No one else has the uh, the stoicism to pull it off. Yeah, exactly. And you know, the Japanese uh, as a country did that with an incredible amount of dignity, even yeah. if they they felt the they felt the indignity themselves, but they kind of held it in and dealt with it. I'm, I don't think that would be the case for China. I just, I just don't see it. And so, you know, it's 
I think what we're seeing here is something which, you know, the scale of which has never really been seen before in history. Um, and also the Japanese um, did that um, into a rising Chinese economy, a rising Asian economy, and a world which was kind of, uh, you know, firing on all cylinders, which I'm not really sure that you can say now. And so, what you know, the environment in which they managed to delever their economy was far, far better than the environment which China is likely to have as a backdrop. And so, again, I think it's it's going to be pretty tough for them. So if, um, just trying to think what might derail your your view here and obviously i'm sure you you you'll you, you'd be thinking of things to counter your argument um because you've got to look out for them to know whether you're going to be wrong um what i'm thinking is um if the currency if the one keeps declining and the rest of the world continues to increase their demand will that then rebalance the uh the, their their economy to a certain extent um because you just get increased increased demand from the west at a cheaper price because the currency's gone down and that could kick start another boom for them yeah potentially like if if that does happen i'm not too worried about it because um you know, being short the currency, you're sort of exposed to um, to, to that event. And you know, even if even if it, you do end up getting into a more positive place, you still hopefully you've took your money and run before that's happened. Um, uh, yeah, it, it's certainly possible. Um, how much the US would let them devalue their currency before sort of kicking up a big fuss about it, um, we don't know. Um, and Deglobalization, uh, if it continues, is really very unhelpful for China. Um, if the West decides it wants to kind of, you know, move all of its um, infrastructure and manufacturing away from China, there's not really a huge amount they can they can do with that. You know, let's say let's say um, the wall went up, the Great Wall of China went up all the way around, and China had to had to um, use up all its supply and balance it against its own demand. It's a, it's a very, very long way off being able to cope with that. And so it really depends on how, how well China gets on with the rest of the world. Um, but as it stands, things only seem to be getting worse, not better. Um, uh, as, measure, more, as, more, as measured how? As measured, well, as as measured um well i i guess this you know this is this is this is true over years rather than months is what sure. i'm is what i'm getting at you know you you you've got um the perception that russia that um that china is supporting russia um you have um more and more sort of fiscal policy from uh, the us like Green New Deal and the CHIPS Act, which is essentially directly designed to pull manufacturing away from China. Um, global trade, global trade has been flat for many years. Um, trade between China and the US has sort of just about capped up and been flat, but that's in a, that's in the context of um, significant extra goods consumption in the West. Um, relative to what, what it would have been if we hadn't been through all COVID and the lockdowns and stuff. And so, you know, now we're 
hopefully out of that, I think you'll see um, the impact of that sort of decline in relationship between the US and China. But I mean, are, are you seeing are, are you seeing uh, something different on that? Like, do you think no, that no. do you think that China can get on better with the with the West? I, I think that uh, apart from the Chips Act, which are, which is designed for actually for whatever reason it, it, it in some ways makes sense because of security but i just wondered if that was just the america protecting their market um i i just wonder whether companies pre-covid um and during covid would say things like oh i'm not going to deal with china anymore because you know we were completely stuffed with our supply lines etc etc but then memories go fade very quickly and people just say actually they're still cheaper you know we're, we're still going to deal with them let's just let's compared to actually doing this in the us which is going to be far more expensive um especially seeing as workers seem to be demanding more and more money as well they may be forced to go back to china or maybe just out of short-term business decisions in which case um it also gives room for china to reduce interest rates and they don't have as much debt as well so these uh the people in charge might come up with the bright idea of creating a bit of inflation themselves and um they they've probably got more tools to do it or better tools to do it, or from a better position than certain other countries so certainly better than the us so those those are the things that are, would would suggest that things are changing or or could run counter to that but at the moment what we're seeing is the chinese stock market and the hong kong stock market are massively underperforming the west and they're not it's not going down but it's going sideways so we shall see whether there's any sea change when the sort of broader equity markets break into new highs whether they just sort of hang around and 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 go sideways and are relatively underperforming or whether they actually start to play catch up and we see potentially the situation change yeah well actually i do think that um it when, when it comes to stocks in china um and and particularly because of the things that you're mentioning you know if 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 china is feeling particularly vulnerable the chance that they will kind of do stuff to improve their a lot you know sort of play play a bit nicer with the rest of the world does certainly go up and i think you you have seen that a fair bit like in terms of um the value of like offshore listed um chinese companies uh, as sort of just about held up despite uh seemingly increasing uh, us sanctions towards them they seem to have done okay and so so yeah i i, I definitely think china is willing to pay lip service to some of this stuff um where I think the problem lies is that, you know, you, once you've kind of built this uh, state-directed economy whereby um, you suppress wages relative to industrial profits, which are recycled through the state and who continue to make economic decisions, um, if you rebalance to a kind of um, a more consumer-oriented society where you know, you allow a little bit of inflation, you allow wages to go up, you uh, allow consumer demand to rise, like with a rise in economic power, potentially comes a rise in political power. And I'm not sure the, the Chinese are willing to accept that. Um, they seem to very much um, view that as a risk. And 
don't want to, um, you know, they, they've had many, many opportunities to try and rebalance their economy towards the consumer, and they haven't done it. And every single time they come back to trying to trying to sort of stimulate by giving more and more, more and more money to state-owned companies, and you know, just just more of the same. And the re- you know, given that the reasons for that are political as well as economical. Um, I'm not sure they're really going to change. You know, in if you look at the Soviet Union in the past, um, they were they had many many opportunities to shift to more to more consumer driven demands rather than industrial directed policy, and they didn't. And it wasn't because they didn't understand the economic calculus. It's because they did understand the political calculus. They knew what would happen if they allowed people to have more of a say. And so that I think is the main reason why. China can't really get out of it it's because the people at the top still benefit from the system massively and have a huge interest in keeping things the same, even if, economically speaking, China goes into a period of relative decline relative compared to the West. I think, I think it's, it's, it's completely plausible that the leadership in China allows that to happen when the potential alternative is losing state-directed power. I appreciate it's some way away from your mandate, but and and from investment specifically from pure investment. But do you think there's any possibility that the 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 economic crisis in China is potentially big enough to bring to bring down Xi Jinping? Uh, the, the, I mean, it's wishful is, thinking on my part because yeah. I bluntly think we're at war with the Chinese Communist Party. But you know, I I think we're a long way away from that. Um, and, you know, like certainly to an extent, um, there, there is some flexibility, you know, they moved away from zero COVID policy, not really because they wanted to, but because people started complaining. And so it's pretty clear that there is some flexibility if people do start complaining. Mm. Um, in some ways though, I do think that, you know, Xi Jinping was in the privileged position of being on top of China in eight years of pretty decent growth like i you know i can kind of see why you'd want to be the leader of china in those times um why you'd want to be the leader of china now i don't know so much because you know it's it's just you know in in terms of his place in history his his place in history is going to um decline you know his his status is going to decline as a result of the economic quandary that china has got itself into and so I, so you, 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 want, you want it to be like a sort of Alex Ferguson resignation moment? Get out, <laughs> get out while the going's good. Well, I I could somewhat understand if he were to do that, right? You know, it's not like it's not like Putin in Russia, where if he leaves, he's probably going to get killed um, because he's got so much. You know, because that because the power is so personally concentrated. Um, the CCP is a very very powerful apparatus, and if he leaves, there will probably just be a lookalike who kind of takes his place and, you know, he can sort of preserve his, his status and, you know, pull, pull an Alex Ferguson. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm not, I'm not predicting that's going to happen, but who, who knows in the, in the murky world of Chinese politics, anything is possible. So um, coming back to what makes you then decide that, that you would be wrong on your position. So if, so you're short at the moment, the Chinese Yuan and you're short equities, um, if nothing changes from a macro point of view, yet those positions move against you, what do you do? Um, so I, I guess it depends on the external environment, right? You know, if 
if there is an environment where, let's say, the US dollar is really, really weak and emerging markets do well and um, central banks all over the world decide to cut policy rates because they think that the economy is going to perform a lot better. And as a result, you know, you see a boom across the emerging world. Um, you know, that would be something that, in, you know, in the short term, I would have to get out the way of. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that I'm wrong in the long term. It just means uh, I need to be much more careful about my position in, in the short term. And so you've got, you know, I, I like the way that I, I sort of do it, do it is that I always want to keep a position because if I don't keep a position, then I sort of, I feel like I, I can potentially neglect um, my analysis of that asset. And so, I, you know, I'll maybe keep like a third of the size of the position on and hopefully have some exposure elsewhere in my portfolio to to some of those you know more constructive things and, you know, ride out a bit of loss on a smaller size position. And then wait for the wait for the sort of short term catalyst to line up with the long term catalyst again on the China position. Um, in terms of you know actually exiting that position and being wrong, I guess what you're looking at is a sort of a South Korea sort of situation whereby um, the dictatorship sort of voluntarily gives up, um, gives more um, democratic and economic power to their constituents and sort of exit stage left. I think if that happens, um, I would, you know, it, or, or even if there were signs of that starting to happen, that would be, that would really challenge my thesis and I would have to exit the trade in, in the long term. So with, so a couple of things come from this, I think are really quite fascinating, which means, first of all, um, many people have predicted the sort of the end of America in terms of the dominant power within the US and China would be the, the the country that would take over. That doesn't sound like that's going to happen, regardless, and and um, and that is a long term call. Um, and and um, and secondly, um, when it comes to your decision making, obviously you're saying you're going to look more from a political or or an economic event rather than a price event, but. Um, but the, the second thing I wanted to ask about this was within Trium Capital, do you solely make the decisions for your portfolio or do you have more than one person that sort of sits down and manages your portfolio? And can you have other portfolios within the company that could be running sort of completely opposite and with a completely different, um, uh, you know, uh, mandate? Yeah, so so within the company, so it's it's kind of like a multi-manager setup, and so but most of the money is run in sort of is controlled by individuals, and so um, like you know, so I I run like a USIT macro fund, um, and you know I'm the sole sole manager on that account, and so yeah. it's essentially yes, I decide what the investment strategy and the individual investments are within that, and that's you know at my sole discretion, so long as it's kind of within my uh, mandate of risk, um, which is, you know, as a macro manager is is kind of pretty extensive. Um, yeah, there are other there are other strategies within Trium Capital. Um, you know, we've got kind of um, sort of industrial focused equity strategies and 
um, merger hub type, type strategies, and you know, they're, they're run completely independently of what I do. And it's sort of like, you know, Trium Capital kind of sits on top of all of them and, um, you know, provides the services, uh, raises the money, kind of keeps, keeps everything ticking. But yeah, from my perspective on, on a portfolio level, I make the, the, the decisions solely. So with regard to China, you, yeah. are, you, you're, are you saying that America will remain the dominant global power for many years to come? Yeah, I, I would say that. And so I, I actually, like one of the things which makes me uh, pretty constructive on this is that if you know, if you look across Twitter and you look at across the kind of financial investing sort of uh, blogosphere, there is so, so much pessimism on the US dollar and on the continuing hegemony of the US system. And I, I, I just think that's completely misplaced. Um, you know, the, the US is seemingly going through another new wave of innovation in terms of AI. Um, it, it remains the predominant military on the planet. Um, it's, yeah, yes, you know, fiscal deficits are high. Um, but there really still is no alternative to the US dollar. Like, you know, if, if you're looking at uh, treasury bonds as collateral, um, at the moment, Fed fund, rates, Fed fund rate is about 5.5%, uh, whereas the yield on a 10-year treasury is just above 4%. Now, what that tells you is there is significant demand for treasuries as an asset, as a safe asset. And to be frank, I don't think uh, the dominance of the US in financial markets will change until someone can come up with another safe asset to kind of rival the US Treasury. Uh, China, China has not done that. It, like China is seeing net outflows from its market. There is no interest in owning Chinese bonds. You know, you look at Russia, you, no one wants to own their assets. That's part of the problem. You know, that's why the ruble is selling off at the moment. Um, no one wants to hold any money in it because they're unsure of its status. Um, you look at the Middle East, they're essentially running pegged currencies to the US dollar. And so you're just buying a second order derivative of the US dollar if you're buying, say, the Saudi real or something like that. Um, until, you know, and I think, I think to, be, to be frank, you know, the last 20 years have seen a significant um, rebalancing of um, growth and GDP away from uh, the West towards uh, emerging market countries. But paradoxically, there hasn't been the same uh, growth in those reserve assets or like the, the equivalent of a treasury. And so given that those countries often um, operate at a surplus and given that those countries become rich and people become rich as a result and then want to diversify outside of those countries into safe assets, I think the, the dominance of the US and the dominance of US treasuries in the system um, is only growing. But you said there's no alternative, but there there are now alternatives, or people are beginning to wake up to different alternatives. One being Bitcoin, but you, we we yeah. can we can talk about whether that is truly an alternative or not. Um, but also gold. So pe people are just deciding, and I say people, I'm just looking at the price of of how gold has been going up. Um, the the whole question of what money is and and where what safety is. Um, especially given the big collapse in in treasuries recently, um, ha has forced people to look elsewhere. And so, 
that that if that trend continues, people will be moving more and more money out of any fiat currency into real assets, hard assets. Yeah, and you, you can see that that's been happening. Like I like I I would say the performance of gold uh, since the start of 2022, uh, when you know global interest rates went up significantly is is truly remarkable like the fact that it's kind of kept pace with um currencies which have increased in yield from zero to five percent and you know is still pretty close to the highs i'd say is 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 a is a period of remarkable outperformance relative to what you'd expect because you know normally um if if interest rates particularly real interest rates go up then um, gold being a, a zero interest rate bearing asset generally declines in uh, price, but that hasn't really happened. And so, yes, you, you know, you can definitely see people are scrabbling around looking for an alternative. The problem is that it's, it's still very difficult to get away from um, a fiat currency because you know, if, if if you were, you know, let's say you you um, are the ruler of an emerging market country. Um, you start accumulating gold. Um, for the most part, you need to you need to get that gold from someone who already holds it. You know, there's not like the, the amount of new new mine supply of gold. I think is about one percent a year. So the vast the vast majority of gold accumulation has to come from getting it out of someone else's hands. And you know, you yes, you, 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 that pushes the price of gold up, but at the same time. That person, you know, you have to accumulate the dollars to pay that person, and that th those dollars then circulate around and try to buy another financial asset, and you kind of don't really get away from it because you know it's it it, it it's, it's sort of circular, and so long as you you know you can't use gold for global transactions, um, it doesn't really work. Uh, you need you need a deficit country who's willing to create the necessary assets on the other side of it, because, you know, there's just not enough, there's not enough global gold supply to sort of facilitate um, the world, you know, the amount of productivity we have in the world. Um, and so, you know, hence that creates the desire for other financial assets. And, you know, the US as a big deficit country sort of fills the requirement for that. Um, China, Russia, any of these sort of you know big emerging markets, no one seems to want to sort of provide the financial asset, you know, the store, the store of security. And yes, I I get you. If you if you are willing to store physical gold, then you know maybe you'll do well out of that. But you know, for the most part, in terms of fast moving trade, it's it's difficult. Um, and then when it comes to Bitcoin, you know, yes, this is an argument for Bitcoin. Um, but essentially, it still doesn't really seem to scale. Um, transaction fees seem to be extortionate. Um, there seems to be scam after scam. And you know, maybe maybe we just need um, you know a period of, of of a few years where people actually kind of build stuff in crypto, as opposed to try and you know build extra financialization on top of it. Because I think the, the 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 tricky thing that that Bitcoin and crypto have is that you know its utility has somewhat been undermined by all of this scamming and leverage that's been built on top of it, which, you know, potentially masks its relevance as an asset for now. 
and we need to kind of get over that period and go back to a, a, a sort of like a more sound uh, way of engaging with Bitcoin in a way which, you know, people don't sort of invest in it as an asset which they think will go up 200% a year. Because so long as it remains in that bracket, it, it's not going to be very useful for global trade. I think the, the problem there is any asset that has gone up by such a massive amount is um, going to be subject to potentially people taking advantage of the lack of knowledge that other people have. And that's how they get scammed. If anyone had bought Bitcoin and they held their own private keys, there is nothing that could have stopped that them being, you know, holding on to them other than somebody scamming them the money off them. But scams happen all the time in, in the financial markets. You know, we, we look at companies during the dot-com boom, you know, Worldcom and, and Enron and all all those companies that um, that that were just, you know, hot air. It doesn't mean that the system itself doesn't work. It just means that you always get this in some form or another. There are scams, you know, cash scams. There are scams for everything that you can think of. Yeah. Um, it's just that when it comes to the this area, it is because it's electronic and because by its very nature, people don't fully understand it when they're approached by someone who's, you know, got mal intentions. It's very difficult for uh, for them or not very difficult. It is harder for them to work out w whether they're about to be scammed or not. So I think that that is what that's the main problem. I think we have to look at the technology and look whether I think it's going to go up or not or whether I think it's going to survive or not. Is kind of put to one side, really. When I look at it this way, there are there are always scams, um, but the technology itself has worked perfectly. And um, whilst we're not dealing in Bitcoin in in our day to day uh, transactions, perhaps that's not really what it's intended for. It's intended to be something to keep the monetary system honest. And in that regard, there are more and more countries that are getting interested in it. And, and I, uh, the overall direction um, is one that I'm interested in. It, and, you, and it feels like we're moving further away from um, central banks being allowed to just print at will. And, there, and, and that, this, I think, is where keeping them honest is potentially a problem in the sense that they don't have any alternative. So it's not like they are just going to start, governments are going to start raising taxes to pay back all the debt that they've created. It's, it's in every country, it's pretty much, not, I mean, not every single country, but in all the major countries, it's just gone too far. There's nothing you can do about it. And it's just going to explode one day. And when that is, we just don't know. But, you know, it's a mountain and inflation is, is one technique. But inflation is possibly the only technique that they'll have until that gets out of hand and then the system breaks. I, I, can't, see, I can't see any way, any other way that that will work. Yeah, I, I, think, I, I think it's great that you have um, that kind of you know, human-created innovation um, as an experiment out there. Like, I think none of us, none of us know it which way it's going to go, like whether it will truly prove its utility. But 
it's great that the fact that it's out there and you know people people are trying and experimenting um with new methods as you say to keep to keep these guys accountable and it is it is it is an alternative way of doing that and and yeah i think it's fantastic um you know whether it can survive um interest rates going higher and a more sort of fiscally driven rather than monetarily driven economy that's what i don't know because you know if you look at if you look at what when bitcoin did best it was when you had this this vast creation of new base money during covid times which is slowly being removed um and you know as we're seeing wages go up and you know shifting from uh monetary policy to fiscal policy and you start to you know potentially see a more egalitarian distribution of of wealth in the west um rather than you know this this qe driven vast asset accumulation which you sort of like want to keep out of the hands of the authorities and you don't really know what to do with like i would say i would say it's that factor which drove cryptocurrencies to the highs and i kind of think given the global shortage of labor that we've got um the need for that sort of form of extreme asset accumulation uh, you know a place to put it is going to diminish relative to the fact that if you want to get stuff done you're going to have to pay people higher wages and so i'm just not sure or like i think i think it's a great technology i think it's great for holding people to account but i'm just not sure that any asset of that nature is going to do well in a world where at least from my standpoint um wages are going to go up relative to gdp and um probably the wealth di- the, the the distribution of wealth is going to kind of is going to redistribute down to the lower end and as such there is less need for an asset like that um that's kind of my view but you know i i appreciate if we go back to um the qe infinity world of like monetary uh driven inflation yeah i would absolutely want to own bitcoin and all of the assets in that ecosystem so where in the world do you think is the best place to invest if we're not investing in china uh if we think the us could be doing pretty well how does that fare with with europe and and um and the uk separate separating uk and and europe where would be your your top picks uh, so I think, so I, I think Europe, at least in the short term, and including the UK in this, um, will probably do a little bit better than people expect. Um, just because I think the surprise that we can actually get enough um, liquefied natural gas and um, other sources of power um, at a relatively cheap price has still not been factored into markets, and so I think. Um, a lot of industry which has sort of been considered out for the account within europe you know in terms of like fertilizer and other sort of like um sort of high energy consumption industries will probably do okay uh, certainly relative to the extreme pessimism of of this time last year and so i'm kind of you know relatively constructive on europe just because of that fact alone um wheat prices have collapsed haven't they i mean they 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 hit a a high of of uh, 1353 i can see on my chart in G- april may 22 they're currently trading at 600 so and that was all supposedly driven by the the um 
well, what was it? The, the shortage of uh, fertilizer, potential fertilizer that was supposed to push the price up because of the war in Ukraine. And so that's, you know, backing up your point that things, things have adjusted. And, but with natural gas, that's, I know we, we uh, import liquefied natural gas. Natural gas prices have dropped uh, considerably. And I think the problem there is that the companies are now just hold like with petrol prices, they, they go down very, very slowly. They go up and they're very sticky and it's, it's very hard to pass that, that, that lower price on because once consumers are, are spending money at a certain level, they, they, they see no reason to remove their margin. Yeah, no, that, that's a problem. And, and also because, you know, when gas prices were going up, they were being subsidised, right? The subsidies kicked in. And so now that gas prices are coming down, that subsidy is sort of being paid back, essentially. Yeah. And so, yeah. so yeah, that kind of slows the whole thing down and just and makes it all take longer. Um, but what, one thing I do think is that well, in the long term, you, you never bet against human innovation. And you can see that with the response to um, the Ukraine war with, you know, global food production disrupted, uh, global energy production disrupted. It's all come back like far quicker than anyone expected. And, you know, it's, it's the same with Bitcoin. Bitcoin is human innovation. I would, I'd never really want to be uh, want to be short it. Um, and so I think you always have to you always have to factor that in, you know, yes, there's a lot of bad things that happen in the world, but you always have that human innovation, which kind of comes in, works out how to do things with less fertilizer, works out how to get around bottlenecks, uh, works out how to massively increase um, global LNG production and, and get it, get it into Europe. And so I think that's always, that's always, a, that's always a key thing for me, which um, I stick to is just try not to bet against human innovation in the, in the long run. So do you think energy prices will remain relatively, not subdued, but they're not going to go back up to the levels we saw a year or so ago? I don't think so. I, I don't think they will. You know, we're specifically talking about like gas prices and yeah. European gas prices. Well, well crude oil um, as well. Yeah. Like, you know what? I, like crude oil is not expensive right now. Um, in 2008, which is now 15 years ago, um, crude prices were one four seven percent higher than they are today. Yeah, and you know, crude prices are not high. You know, if if you're paying a lot for petrol at the pump, it's not because of the price of crude oil. Um, so I, I actually don't think, um, you know, the global cost of crude um, is really much of an issue right now. Like the the cost of gas is, um, but I do think it will come down. I think. You know, when you when you look at um, all of the bad things which happened last year, you saw, you know, you had like really diminished uh, river levels in Europe, which meant there wasn't enough um, water for hydro. And as a knock on effect for that, you didn't have enough uh, water for to cool uh, the French nuclear reactors. All of that stuff is completely the opposite way around this year. We've got like massively full reservoirs. Um, You've had, um, you know, new nuclear power stations connected to the grid, um, delayed shutdowns. Um, you've had, you know, new wind and solar being connected. You know, yes, that's intermittent, but it kind of helps at the margin. Um, you've had, you know, more energy efficient processes being used. Um, and yeah, so I, I, do, I do think that gas prices can come down. Like, and I do think, you know, and, you know, if you were to bet, 
uh, on lower gas prices, you know, you've got the kicker of, you know, a potential resolution or ceasefire in the, in the Ukraine conflict as well in your favor. And so to me, you know, when you're looking at um, the price of an asset, I think you've got to sort of factor in uh, the shocks that could make it go up and the shocks that could make it go down. And, you know, looking now at um, European gas prices, I think most of the shocks that you could reasonably expect are more likely to make the price go down rather than up. So would you be short China, long, long the UK, long Europe, or does it not work like that? Do you just express your one view and not trade it on a spread? So um, I think that I, I, like looking at looking at the UK, I think that UK rates and you know the expectations for UK interest rates are probably too high, and you know that is partially because of this sticky inflation that we've been seeing, um, which seems to you know we seem to have got inflation in the UK which is higher and stickier than the rest of the Western world. You know, there's a number of, there's a number of reasons for that, but I think most of those reasons are probably fairly temporary, and. Um, as we see energy prices go down and as you see exporters sort of get more used to like new goods standards and processes, you will start to see uh, UK inflation come down and, you know, particularly, and this, this is a short term thing, you know, this is like, I'm looking at, um, you know, interest rate expectations first. Um, I think they, they're probably too high in the UK just because I think there's a little bit of uh, catch down in uk inflation relative to other places and if that happens i think you know uk assets can can do relatively well you know if you if you if you see the uk outperform in terms of reducing inflation um probably that'll be a positive surprise for um a lot of uk companies and so you know the, i'm not i'm not playing it directly through those companies but i you know i could i could i could see why people would similarly for the us would you say um the US is tricky because you know you've had a you've had a massive hype driven um, rally in stocks and that's taken a lot of things to some pretty excessive valuations. Um, so I, I would struggle to sort of suggest that anyone invests in sort of you know US stock indices at the moment. Um, and you know because of that, and you know much to your point earlier, if you have um, stock market valuations going up, um, the chances of those companies cutting jobs, cutting output, et cetera, et cetera, is pretty low. And so I actually think it's going to be quite difficult for the US to, to get into a recession anytime soon um, when the stock market has been ramping higher. Um, and so because of that, I actually think that U.S. interest rates and particularly yields at the long end of the U.S. bond market can go higher, and I think that can potentially hurt uh, U.S. equities a bit more. Uh, and so, so broadly speaking, I'd probably be I'd probably be short the U.S. Um, I think that, you know they just they aren't running tight enough monetary policy. I know that sounds shocking given we've basically increased the interest rates by 5% in a very short period of time. But, you know, you just look at the way the economy is reacting. Uh, you look at GDP, you look at, you look at wages, you look at the labor market, you look at the stock market. It's not screaming um, like restrictive monetary conditions. And so my guess is in the US is that monetary policy is probably going to get more restrictive and that's going to somewhat hurt US asset prices. So, Tim, um, anything to add? Nothing, on? nothing to add. Nothing, nothing to add. Nothing to add. Okay. Nothing to add. 
Okay, cool. great. Um, well, Tom, was there anything that you wanted to to mention or any assets or anything that uh, we haven't covered? I don't think so. I think I think we've covered quite a lot. We've kind of spanned uh, spanned a, a large period of time and uh, and quite a few different markets. So I think uh, I think there's uh, I think let's leave it there. I just want to ask one final question about specialization yeah. because you're you're interested in China and obviously that must be a full time job just to keep uh, keep on top of what's going on there. Do you do your own research on these other areas or do you defer to other people within the company to provide you with research documents on those other areas? Uh, so I'd say it's a bit of both. Um, you know, like I, I ultimately, like I'm the decision maker. Um, and so when it comes to China, like China's a market which I was pretty active in looking at um, when I was working for Eclectica. And so I've been, I've been kind of um, dug in pretty deep there for, for over a decade now. And so I have a, a fairly good understanding about what's going on. And well, you know, the point I mentioned before about the astrological calendar in China um, is that things don't actually move that quickly in China. You know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of headline noise, but in terms of the kind of the pace of true economic development, it doesn't happen that fast. And so you can, you, you can keep on top of it fairly well, you know, whereas, you know, when you're looking at the US or, or Europe, um, you can have quite significant changes to policy and to, uh, to what's going on more broadly, uh, much quicker. So that, that can be often quite, that can often actually be harder to keep, keep on top of than let's say China. Um, but yeah, you know, so I, you know, we've got a, there's a, there's something like 30 investment professionals here at Trium. Um, I've got, I've got a, a full-time analyst who works with me. Uh, you know, we, we get, we subscribe to various um, sort of external research and, you know, I talk to a lot of people which kind of, um, you know, who I've kind of come into contact with throughout my career and that kind of helps to make decisions. Um, and yeah, so, so a bit of a mix really. With a lot of Chinese companies or the, mm. some of the bigger tech ones, they're sort of quasi government um, companies, aren't they? Cause they get so much support and it's, um, I know obviously the US is going to protect their own markets and these big companies have a lot of influence on politics. But um, although things move slowly, especially in the area of technology, things can move very quickly. Um, and and say, for example, with Huawei, uh, they will be supported by the government far more than, say, certain US companies like Apple or whatever. Um, what they're doing can be relatively opaque because we won't be able to see exactly what's going on there and they're getting support. So we, we can't, how do you judge the condition of, of a company like that when, um, when they're receiving support and you, you don't know whether they're going to come out with some amazing product that's going to do brilliantly well in China um, or whether actually they're, they're kind of like losing money and they're just being supported because um, because China wants to have a equivalent company that is their own and not rely on on uh, you know all American technology. Well, I gotta say, I'm gonna I, I'm gonna have to apologise because I'm gonna have to somewhat dodge that question mm. um, by saying that 
I try, I try and, I try and, well, I try and dodge that question in my investing, I should say, mm. um, by investing in a, in a kind of a, a broad, diversified um, sort of uh, basket of companies which sort of expresses a particular theme. And so, as much as possible, I try and uh, leave questions like that to the sort of, you know, the the stock experts who, or the political experts who, who sort of like try and would delve a little bit deeper than than I would. Um, but if there was too much question marks, if it was if it was too opaque, I would I would just avoid the investment entirely. But I think you know if you look at if you look at some of these Chinese tech companies, you know the um, the software tech companies, it's pretty clear what's going on. I think I think you're right when it comes to when it comes to hardware stuff like Huawei and the like. It is extraordinarily opaque. Whereas, you know, you look at Alibaba, you look at Tencent, what they're doing and the way that they sort of talk about their earnings seems broadly sensible. Mm. And um, you know, if anything, you can argue that the way that the Chinese government has treated those companies has been to to kind of hold them back, not to help them. Um, unlike the hardware guys who they've, you know, they've clearly tried to push to the forefront. And I guess you know that's that's partially just because you know whenever whenever any anyone starts to get too big bigger um, an exposure within China, like Jack Ma did at Alibaba, um, China just want to clip their wings, and you know stopping that company from doing what they do is is part of that. And so yeah, that is a that is a problem. Um, but I'd say you know at this standpoint. Um, to be invested in Chinese software tech, you know, the, the Chinese government have, have have hit them, have you know, have punched them pretty hard. Um, they're probably going to benefit from the same kind of AI boost to income as the US guys have. You know, a bit behind because they have to be more careful with their regulatory environment and what they do. Um, but yeah, I think I think you just you, you just got to wait. You wait until they get punched and they just about get knocked down, and then you buy them, as opposed to when they're flying high. So, will there be a time when are you expecting there to be a time? Obviously, not not in this, not in the next few years, but perhaps longer, where you're going to completely flip and start investing and go long. Yeah, so so well, I, I'm actually long some of those Chinese tech companies at the moment. Oh, okay, um, okay. Because I, I just think they you know they're trading on distressed valuations, and it's, and it's a good hedge to um, some of my other pessimism around China. Um, uh, and so so yeah, so I, I will I will sort of take the other side, and you know partially it's just because I think the Chinese government, when things are going so poorly for them economically. Um, they, they, what one, th- one easy thing that they can do is is release the shackles on those tech companies a little bit and let them kind of do their thing because they've been a decent driver of growth for them. And so, just by kind of leaving them alone for a year or two, I think they can actually do quite well. Interesting, interesting. Well, Tom, uh, it's been a real pleasure having you on. And um, before you go, we like to do the media picks thing. So. Um, <laughs> Just bef- what we'll do is we'll go to Tim to give you a chance to think of something. Um, <laughs> it, it sometimes happens that I haven't got anything either, but uh, I usually come up with something. But um, Tim, what what have you got for us this this week? So mine is um, mine is a film that's just come out called Air, which is about the uh, Nike Michael Jordan relationship. 
Um, it's got a nice cast, Matt Damon, Jason Bateman, who I've always liked, Ben Affleck. It takes itself far too seriously, but I mean, I, as a non-sporty person, as a non-Nike shoe-wearing person, a lot of the stuff about basketball was completely new to me. And the, 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 the terms under which Jordan ultimately signs uh, unbelievable unbelievable wealth creation um but it it's it's basically about selling selling shoes about selling um trainers but it, it takes itself far too seriously so it it, it it gets a bit ott at times but it's very very watchable yeah I, i've seen it i yeah. really enjoyed it i thought it was um considering there's there's no sex or violence or you know car chase or anything like that it was it was extremely watchable and really enjoyed. it's very very well written very well acted but, yeah um, yeah it's it was almost surprisingly that when you look back i couldn't couldn't think of what it was about it that i really liked about it but i still liked it if that it's just it's just it's, it's it's a perfect example of sort of hollywood slickness yes it's a very a very approachable film yeah it's the classic one guy's got a vision nobody can mm. see it and then um, it had a lot in common with Moneyball. It had very much yes. the same kind of ethos as Moneyball. Yes, just the yeah, the, the one guy, the loner, the 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 sort of the outlier, determined to press on in the face of you know adversity. Yes. Um, have you seen it, Tom? I, I've not seen that, but I'm I'm a big fan of Moneyball, and so anything uh, along those lines is uh, should definitely be on my watch list. So I'm, I'm going to have to check that out. I, I've not I've not really come across it, but um, but yeah, I'll put it on the list. I, I heard someone saying that the um, that US baseballs become now so all about stats. It's all stats. I mean, it was stats before, of course, but all the decisions are just made solely on stats. It's almost gone too far the other way. Have, have you heard anything about that, or is Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not a big expert on baseball. I can tell you, <laughs> sorry, I got, I got nothing. Okay. Even if you oh. asked me about cricket, I probably wouldn't be able to tell you that much. But they're very uh, similar, I, I aren't they? Football they're, and rugby. I'm not, I'm, I'm really not your go-to guy. They're, they're very similar, aren't they? They're baseball and cricket. So they've both got, they're, they're both very stat rich sports and the geeks love their, love their sort of Bibles of, you know, of, of tech, oh, I'd almost call it technical analysis, but it's you know the, all the, the the history of the 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 ball by ball accounts of play and stuff. It is they're, they're full of stats. Well, it can be a book, by the way, or a podcast or something something of that nature. Tom, or a single or an album. Um, yeah, um, so it, it, this is not that recent, but it's something that I've seen recently, which is um, well, the second season of White Lotus. Have you guys seen White Lotus? No, no but I've heard of um, it. Well, the the reason I mention it because well, I'm off to uh, I'm off to Sicily where the second season is set uh, next week, and so I heard that the show was set there, and so I went to, I, so I I watched it, and it's essentially um, a a tragedy slash farce, like big budget HBO production. Um, set in a really high end resort in Sicily, and it goes through this kind of shakespearean descent into madness where you get like a you know you start with a with a with a bunch of very very normal um but quite wealthy holidaymakers and it ends in in murder and catastrophe and uh it's gripping watching great soundtrack i'd very much recommend anyone to watch it fantastic Fantastic. Well, I haven't seen Barbie yet, but I hear it's very good. <laughs> I've I've seen the Mission Impossible, which I've already recommended, and um, 
I haven't seen Oppenheimer yet, but I saw some comments that it's perhaps a bit too long at three hours. But once I've seen it, I'll make some, I'll, I'll, I'll comment on that. But obviously, it's doing extremely well, so it must be good. Um, but what I'm going to recommend for for some reason, and I suppose this is just me, I've been I've been looking at. Um, youtube videos about the universe and i don't know whether it's got anything to do with the new james webb telescope and some of the images that have come out but um it it's kind of led me down a path of watching videos about space time and ex explaining what how all that works and stuff we better but, not get onto the topic of flat earth then should we <laughs> perhaps <laughs> not but um but i did see a uh, a really intriguing video that just went through the history of our solar system and how our solar system was created and it's um instead of doing it in one of these sort of you know five seasons or whatever it was done in like um a, a brilliantly put together youtube video but what was really amazing about this was how many times the climate changed um throughout the throughout earth's history and it changed in a really extreme way without um, prompting from anything else. And I, I just found it absolutely fascinating. Um, but just the extremes of, of the way the planet changed and how it changed um, is explained so beautifully in this, this video. And I think it would be really interesting for people who, who are talking about climate change to watch it because it would be it's surprising quite how aggressive the cl climate change has happened before and you might say oh yeah but it, it's us that's doing it and we're doing it really quickly the whole point of climate change is it is always changing it always has changed and it's always changed for lots of different reasons i mean there is a point for example where it was raining for a hundred thousand years on the earth is that in manchester <laughs> well it's, it's pretty much in london isn't it? Well, I was going to say, I, I'm from the Bracken Beacons, and I'm pretty sure it's still going there. Yeah. I mean, it's just like stats like that that are just absolutely incredible. Um, and, and so I'm going to share that one. It's called You Are Here, and it's from a YouTube channel, SEA. Um, but I'll put links in the show notes. So, Tom, look, it's been absolutely fantastic. Thank you for sharing all your views. And if people want to get in contact with you, do you, they would go to the website, which I can put a, a link to, um, what, what are your handles? Yeah. So you can, so you can go to the train website and you can get in touch that way. Um, if you want to talk to me personally, I'm on, I'm on Twitter. Um, my handle is, uh, T O S T R O, um, which is basically first, first two letters of each of my name. Um, so at, at Tostro, T O S T R O. Right. Okay. Uh, and I know why you've done that because you obviously you couldn't get your name. I did the very <laughs> silly thing of putting a number in mine, so mine looks like a password. So, <laughs> so I think you did a better a, a better job with that. Um, and Trium, it's Trium dash capital. So it's T R I U M dash capital dot com. That's right. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. Well, thanks once again. And um, it'd be great to have you back and uh, to talk about whether things are going your way or, or whether you've seen any changes. We really enjoyed the discussion today. Uh, so, so thank you very much. And uh, yeah, I'd love to come back. Our pleasure. Thanks a lot. Cheers, Tom. Cheers. Thanks, everybody. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Please do your own research or contact a professional advisor. <laughs>